So guys, I uh, decided to actually make this more like a class than a straight lecture. So I'm gonna I'm gonna talk to you the way I would to my students. Now the way I like to teach is through an interactive way. So I may actually call on you. <laughs> so, so I, I promise I promise Mrs. Flippin over here. Her husband is one of the wisest men I know. He's a colleague of mine. It's like anytime I have any question at all, I go to Doug Flippin. But uh, but I'm glad he's not here, because if he were, I would be a nerd. <laughs> I, I, I don't know if you know this, do you know what the number one fear of a professor is? You may be surprised by this, but it's the fear of being found out. <laughs> it, it actually is the most dominant fear. But, but uh, so, so listen, guy, Mark is right, so what I was gonna try to teach you, I really wanted to try to just accomplish one thing with you, and that's to try to get you to see what the relationship is between freedom and truth. So that's it. So if we can pull that off, I'm gonna get two thumbs up. So uh, now here's the thing. Uh, teaching is not about the teacher, it is about the student. So at the end of my presentation, at the end of this class, if what I said makes no sense to you, I want you to have the humility to tell me that. We'll try to get you to at least walk away with one point. Is that fair enough? Okay, now, Colonel told me that he did his homework, all right, because I sent you guys uh, like a two or three page thing that I created myself. Uh, Gwyneth asked me to put together some kind of reading packet. I was like, I don't know what to go out with. So I decided to just write my own. So did you guys get a chance to look at that? Okay, can I ask you, did, did, did I'm gonna go ahead and just summarize what I sent you, because I think it's necessary to make sense of the thing we're gonna look at today. But do you guys have any questions? So what I did, so for, for those of you who either did not receive it or did not get a chance to look at it, I basically gave you three meanings for freedom as well as three meanings for truth. All right, so I just wanna know, do you all have any questions? If not, I'm gonna go ahead and tell you what meaning of freedom I'm gonna to utilize today. And then I'm gonna use two meanings of truth. But I, any questions at all? If not, that's perfectly fine and I'll go ahead and tell you what I mean by freedom today, as well as by truth. Okay, well let me go ahead and tell you. By freedom, I'm gonna utilize the following meaning. Okay, this is not the only meaning of freedom. But I'm gonna say this, you are free, all right, if the following is true, that you move yourself to what you want. So in any act, if you move yourself to what you want, I can say you're moving yourself freely, okay? So let me go ahead and tell you when you're not moving yourself freely, if this definition is correct, okay? You would not be free if you don't move yourself when you act. So if something else is moving you, I wouldn't describe your act as free. Let me give you a concrete example. I take an arrow and shoot it at a target. It would be, I think, absurd to say that the arrow is flying free. Why? Because the arrow is only moving because I'm forcing it, so to speak, to move. Okay, the second thing is, if you do something but you don't want to do it, then you can actually say you're not free when you do it. Let me give you a concrete example of that. I'm getting this from Aristotle. Right? If you're a pilot of a ship and you've got cargo and you're in the middle of a storm 
and you're thinking my shift is going to go down, all right, and you look at the cargo and you think I've got to throw the cargo over the side in order to save the ship. Okay, on one level, you did it willingly, but it's not actually what you want to do. So to that extent, guess what is said? When you throw the cargo over the ship, you're not really doing it freely. Why? Because you're doing something you really don't want to do. Okay, now I'm gonna tell you, this is very relevant when it comes to the question of truth and freedom. So is that fair enough, guys? Yeah. All right, okay, now truth, two meanings. There's actually three, but I'm gonna only utilize two. One is this, every single reality, I don't care what you're talking about, you can talk about this tie of mine. It unfortunately, you can also be talking about my nose, which I think is the least desirable feature on my face. If you ever look at your face in the mirror, like, why, oh, why, Lord, did you give me that nose? Okay. But I would say every single reality is true. All right, so guys, when you look outside, look at the tree, guess what you can say? There is truth there. Okay. So let me just tell you, in philosophy, this is called the transcendental truth. So have you ever heard truth is a transcendental? It means every single being is true. Okay. But the other meaning of truth is this. If my intellect is in agreement with reality, then I can say truth is in my intellect. So let me show you how that works. So if I say the tree is red and the tree is not red, then guess what is not in my intellect? Truth is not in my intellect. But if the tree is brown and I say in my intellect, that tree is brown, guess what the case is? To that extent, there's truth in my intellect. You guys got that? All right, wonderful. Okay, now just real quickly, side note. Of course, there's two and three intellects. There's the divine, there's the angelic, and there's the human. Okay, God's intellect is truth. The angelic intellect and my intellect and your intellect, you are not truth. You can have truth, but you are not truth. All right, is that fair enough? Okay, now, let me tell you this. I have to presume two things today. I'm going to assume two things. Okay, number one is I'm going to assume that all you guys will grant me that there is objective truth. And I go ahead and, and, and if you don't think there is, will you at least grant me? And what I mean by objective truth is this, is that truth exists independently of you and me. Okay. So if you went out of existence, there would still be truth. If I went out of existence, there would still be truth. Ready? If every single human person went out of existence, the claim is there would still be truth. Okay. That's what I mean by objective. Uh, truth. Now, secondly, I'm going to assume the following, that you see it as something desirable to be free. All right. So I'm going to, I'm actually going to go out on a limb here and say this. I think every single person on the face of the earth would agree with that. Every single person, I'm pretty confident, would say, yes, it's something desirable to be free. Guys, just think about it. If someone said, no, it's not desirable to be free, you know what they would essentially be saying to you? They'd be saying this. No, no, freedom, if you want it, go right ahead. No, I would rather be enslaved. Because if you don't want to be free, you're actually more or less saying you would rather be a slave. And I'm going to say no one finds slavery desirable. At least as far as I know, I mean, to actually make a case for slavery would seem to be absurd. But I also think everyone would agree there's something intrinsically valuable about being free. All right? Okay, now is that, is that fair? 
assume those two things to be taken for granted? Okay, now, here's the unfortunate truth. I hope this is not judgmental on my part, but I'm going to say in my own observation, I think the vast majority of humanity is actually living out lives of self-imposed slavery. Okay, I actually think that's true. All right, so my theme is going to be freedom and truth. I'm going to say the, the unfortunate reality is that most people are not living out free lives. They're living out lives of slavery. Okay, now why do I say it's unfortunate? Number one is because the vast majority of humanity does not recognize this about themselves. They don't know it. Okay, but the other unfortunate thing is the few that do are at a loss because they don't know what to do about it. Okay, now I'm going to say that's sad because if they only knew Christ, they would know the answer. Right, so Jesus, I tell you, Jesus, Jesus is great to follow. Yeah, I, but I'd say, let me just say this. If you ever doubt that he's wrong, just say to yourself, shut up. He's right. <laughs> I'm just saying this is an area where he's right. Okay? Now I'm going to try to show you today that he's right. And I'm going to now quote from uh, John 8. This is one of my favorite passages of scripture. Because it has to, well, I like it anyway, but it also has to do with what we're talking about. So let me read this for you. This is from John 8. He says, our Lord says, he's saying it to, to some believing Jews, and he says, if you remain in my word, you will truly be my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are descendants of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How can you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Amen, amen, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. A slave, uh, guys, I think this is actually sort of cool. I think that there's a lot here. I meant to go find myself a theologian. I should have found Dr. Donna. I think there's something to interpret here, but I'm not going to try to do it. But listen to this. A slave does not remain in a household forever, but a son always remains. So if a son frees you, then you will truly be free. Okay. So guys, I'm saying, in my mind, there's what could be more clear than what he just said? So I'm going to say, basically he's telling you, you've got two roads to choose. You've got two roads. Okay. One road will take you to freedom. The other road will take you to slavery. Okay. Follow truth. Give me what our Lord says. Follow truth. And you will be free. Follow sin, and you will be a slave. Okay. Now I'm going to ask you: Is it that simple? Is it that simple? What our Lord is telling us, and I'm going to say on one level, yes, it is. So I'm going to say to you: If you want to be free, you only have to do one thing. That's it. How many things you like to do every day? Ten. But now you only have to do one. Only one. There's only one thing you have to do. And what is that, my friends? Follow truth. Okay. Well, later we'll say follow Jesus. But right now, I want you to say, all I have to do is follow truth. All right? Hopefully I have it in my back pocket. I don't know. I haven't looked. But if I had truth in my back pocket, all I got to do is follow that back pocket of mine, and I will become free. Right? Okay? If I want to be a slave, according to Jesus, all I got to do is what? Sin. And continue to sin. And if you sin, you will become a slave. All right? So my question, but here's the thing. 
it's not that simple on another perspective. Okay, for two reasons. Number one, you know as well as I do, it is not easy to live out the truth consistently. Sometimes it's pretty darn hard to live out truth. Okay. But secondly, I also think we have this gut instinct that freedom and being limited are opposites. Don't you think when you're thinking freedom, you're thinking in those moments, I'm not limited. Okay, so let me say it this way. It looks like if you're free, how many options look like are available to you? A limitless number. That's what it seems like, right? And then you say to yourself, well, if my options are limited, then it would look like what? You're not free. Now, guess what is supposedly limiting you? Well, oh, God bless you. Later on, you say, but right now, what looks like it's limiting you is truth. Because what is truth saying to you? Do that or don't do that. So it's actually doing what? It looks like it's limiting your options. Okay, so I'm going to say in some sense, the answer to what Jesus is saying is not that simple to see. Why he says that is not completely simple to understand. All right? Okay, now, my job with you, and by the way, I, fortunately, I do have a clock. Do I have until about 10 till? Is that, is that about a reasonable point? Of, where are you? Doing? About 10 till? All right. Okay, so, so guys, I'm going to say this. My job with you, my hope, is to show you why Jesus is right. Okay, and again, I'm going to have you walk away, hopefully, with one point, and the point will be why Jesus is right to connect freedom to truth and slavery to sin. All right? Okay, now, my hope is to show you that there's a proportion between truth and freedom and sin and slavery. Okay, what's the proportion? The more I am more free, the more I commit myself to truth. I become more slave the more I sin. So who's the most slavish person of all? The, the complete sinner. Right, so you might actually say the damned souls in hell are the greatest state of slavery. Okay. All right. Now, I'm going to also suggest to you, because uh, part of what we're doing this weekend is to consider what our current culture is like. And I don't want to be too negative here, but I do want to say this. I do think when it comes to how to present the gospel to our own day, I actually think this would be a really smart way of trying to bring the message of the gospel to our own day. The message that if you want to be free, go find the truth and live it. Because I think what you can presume is that everyone wants to be free. So all you got to do, now that sounds simple, all you got to do is convince the modern age that freedom consists in following truth. All right, then if you have hope for converting our culture. All right, so I think they can respond to the message of freedom. I think so. Okay, but I am going to say this. It is very difficult to convey that message because our own age seems deaf to it. Don't you think that our age seems deaf to this message of truth? Okay, and now, if you don't mind, I, I actually thought about this and I was thinking, what is it about our day that causes it to not be able to hear the message of true freedom. And I, I came up with three things. You, you might have other thoughts yourself, but I was thinking this. Our age is predominantly skeptical. 
and here's what I mean by skeptical. It means our age either doesn't believe in the existence of truth, they don't actually think there is truth, or if they do, they're skeptical by saying that there's no way that you can know it. So either there's an outright denial that there's truth, or there's at least the assertion there's no way that you can be certain that you know it. So guys, I'm gonna take you right where I'm sure you're all sick of the following, right, here it goes. All right, if that is the case, do you see you're one step away from saying the following? What you take to be true is not necessarily what I have to take to be true. And so what do you get? The claim that any assertion of truth is just merely a lie. You know it, you hear it all the time. It's just merely an opinion. It's just merely something you believe in. Okay. Okay, now here it goes. I'm gonna show the bit here's the thing I'm sure you're sick of it. I'm sick of it myself. Okay, if that's the case, if my truth doesn't have to be your truth, then give me the moral maxim of our generation. You know it just as well as I do. You hear it every day. Right? The maxim is this. You do not impose your morality on me, and what? I will not do the same to you. Okay, so why? Why is that the one moral maxim of our generation? It's because it's basically who's to say whose view is right, right? So if this is the case, if you're skeptical about truth, then you see there's really no reason to even raise the question of whether truth is connected to freedom. See that? In fact, you ready? I actually think this is part of the thought too. Is if I try to impose one standard of truth on all of you, do you see what our age is thinking? You're actually violating my liberty. Because what is my liberty? To decide for myself what I will take to be true. So to actually impose that would be essentially me trying to impose my will on your will. And no one wants that, okay? So that's, in my mind, that's one of the reasons why our age is deaf to the message of freedom is because it's skeptical. Okay, secondly, our age is like a spoiled child. <laughs> it really is. Our age is like a bratty teenager. Okay. <laughs> what do I mean by that? A teenager hates being told that a spoiled child resents mom and dad because they say no. Our generation wants to assert its own will. It hates being told no. So if you're wondering, guys, I'm telling you, the rebellion against the church is not because the church teaches that Our Lady was immaculately conceived. The rebellion against the church is not because the church teaches that Jesus their rebellion is because people view the church as saying no. And if you're a spoiled child, come on, what is it you don't want to hear? No. You don't want to hear no. So if you're wondering why there's such contempt for the church, I think that's the main reason. It's because church, the church, especially in its moral teachings, represent a no. And people don't want to be told no. So here it goes. You see how this looks like it's opposed to liberty? Because what's someone thinking? All right. If truth 
if I am required to comply with truth, then what is that actually saying to me? That I cannot live out my life the way I want. And so do you see what truth is viewed as? It's viewed as something repressive. Okay, not only does it not have anything to do with truth, it's downright repressive. All right? Yes, this is, a, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sign, I, anybody ask a question in my class? Now, you realize every question is a good question. But I also promised, well, I, I, I also promised Dr. Don, I would say to none of you that your question was dumb. So I won't say that. Right now. Go ahead. Well, I may be getting ahead of you. No, there's, go ahead. There's a tension between those two ideas, right? If on the one hand, there is no truth, my view is as good as your view, but on the other hand, I always want you, to get my God own way. bless you, yes. Yeah, that's the contradiction. You're 100% right. Because here's the thing. You know what I think it is is this. The reason you can make those compatible is because someone who's rebelling against the church would be like, how dare the church? All right, tell me what I need to do in my life. Because that's just the that's just the power of some patriarchal system. It's right. them imposing their will on me. And I don't want my will to be imposed upon. Why? Because who's to say that the church is right? You see, so I think in some way you could bring those together. Right. Is, is that sort of what you were getting at? Oh, it is. And I guess to take it further, that first point, you know, really, if you view it in contemporary culture, really is a lie, right? Because there's all sorts of things that dominant contemporary culture asserts yes. as yes. true. Yeah, Dr. Carroll, that was one of his big themes, is that truth does exist. And it's actually, it, this may seem cute and simple, but it is actually the case that you can refute the claim that there's no truth, because the way you can refute is simply this. If someone says there is no truth, they're asserting that to be true. Right. They're actually saying it's true that there is no truth, which immediately says there is some truth. So the universal claim there's no truth is a contradiction. You cannot assert it. So you're right about that. Oh yeah, in fact our culture, and it's, it's, it's actually the oppressive agent is not the church, they, it, because it is basically dictating that we hold certain opinions. I mean, do you realize certain opinions are simply not tolerated, in, at least in the public realm? Oh, yeah. Oh, I mean, absolutely not. Absolutely not. I mean, you see, well, I actually will tell you, one of the few constellations I've had over the last 20 years of my life is actually seeing the demise of Bud Light. It's like, first of all, it's bad here. But secondly, it's like the first time that a collective will actually represents what I think is right. Okay, the, the reaction against the woke culture, that's what's satisfying about this whole Bud Light thing. I mean, it's very sad to hear, I know it's affecting the livelihood of like, I don't know, 65,000 people were awake by Budweiser. To that extent, uh, that's a sad thing. But if it actually, actually went out of business, I would feel a certain satisfaction from it. <laughs> I would. Because they've been unrelenting in promoting the woke culture. They won't back down, but anyway. Thank you for that question. Yes. 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 So your very first definition was when you're moving toward what you want. Yes. If you move yourself to what you want. Yes. 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 To me, that speaks to our modern culture. Yes. So many of you. That's what I want to say. I'm free. Okay. I'm enslaved, and I look at them and I'm. Okay. You ready for this? That's going to be the whole. If I have you walk away with anything at all, is to try to get you to see what you really want. Okay. Then if you do that, you will be free. So here's the thing I'm saying. Our modern day doesn't understand what it really wants. So the message, the message of truth 
is the message that there is something that you really want, and if you will it, then you'll be free. If you don't will it, then you will be enslaved. That's going to be the message of truth. You see what I'm saying? That the, the saying is this. What you really want okay, will determine whether your act is free. If you will what you really want, then you are free. So, so what's that? Oh, well, no, no, that's not the point. So, right? If you will what you don't really want, if you will what you don't really want, in those moments you're not free. So now I need to make sense of that. And later on, I'm going to tell you when you sin, you're actually willing what you don't want. When you when you will what's true, you are really willing what you want. So that's going to be the key to the whole argument. All right. Okay, fair enough, guys. I mean, there. If I lost it, don't you wouldn't volunteer that. But if I lost you, uh, what I do during homilies, I just think of myself at home plate, bottom of the ninth inning, full count. We're down by three runs. Bases are loaded. And of course, what happens? Uh, yeah. So can I tell you a few story real quickly? I did. I, I'm running out of time, but I got. I got to give you a few story because Colonel loves baseball, so I love baseball. So. I brought back the baseball team because back in like 95, we had four division one level baseball players. Uh, we had one kid that eventually got drafted by the Orioles. I, so we were pretty darn good. But I had a kid on the team from Minnesota. He played all four years, did not get a single hit, except in one game. Okay. We were playing a division one university baseball team. But they were club, so they were equivalent to like division three level. We were down four to two in the top of the fifth inning. And guess what happens? The bases get loaded, and this kid comes to the plate. His name is Paul. Paul, if you could lean over the plate <laughs> and get hit by the ball, that's what I do. Like that. It's a sacrifice for and that's it's a sacrifice for the greater good. That's not yeah. But he he would swing his he swung his bat like this, he like as if he was chopping wood. So there's no chance to hit ball. So guess what the count gets to? Three two. And I'm thinking, I just have to turn my head. And then the pitch comes in, and it happened to be at the right level for that swing. He hits it, and the ball's rising, and we're all just collectively thinking. This is the one miracle that we're going to witness in life. Hit <laughs> a grand slam. <laughs> so we go up six to four, and we win the game six to five because he had one hit in his college career. <laughs> all right, now let me go back to all right. So, 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 guys, let's get. So, I've got about twenty minutes here, so let me get down to the gist of it. So, I'm going to say this, guys. It is not. Oh, so I said it's skepticism. It's like a spoiled child that doesn't like to be told no, but I will say I think the dominant reason is because of the pride. Guys, mm -hmm. listen, I know that it's very easy to think the basketball players in the 1950s were inferior to the basketball players, so we tend to think our generation is either better off than any other generation, but we also tend to think it's worse off. I actually think in this question when it comes to pride, I think the answer is yes. We are the most prideful generation of all time. In my humble opinion, right? Uh, and what I mean by that, so if you if you commit the sin of pride, you are actually in some way wishing to be in the very place of God. So when you commit pride, you actually are to some extent, whether you're aware of it or not, 
trying to put yourself in the place of God. And I'm going to say that's exactly what the message of our generation is. Our generation is trying to turn each of us into a little God. Okay. Okay. Oh, I can't. I want to give you a hug. <laughs> no, I don't want to hug. I was going to say, you stole my thunder. Because I was not. You are 100. Yes. The sin of our day is exactly the sin of Adam and Eve. Now, let me explain why. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Did you bring him? All right. You should keep him. He's all right. But, uh, so here's what I want to say. So what is this? So what I want to say is this. It's trying to give you a power that is not rightfully yours. It's rightfully God's. Okay. Now, are you ready? The power is trying to give each of us is the power, I'm telling you, to define the very meaning of the universe. That's what it's trying to turn each of us into. Our little, each of us is like our little authority of what the very meaning of existence is. And things like human life. But let me, if, do, you, do you doubt this? Because if you do, I'm going to read from a Supreme Court decision of 1992, which was the famous Casey decision, which ratified the right to abortion. And I don't know if you know, Justice Kennedy, the, the Catholic, I was one of the guys that wrote the majority of the opinion. And he realized, as well as Souter and O'Connor and the other judges that voted uh, to favor decision was that he knew that he could no longer support the right of abortion on the right of privacy. So what he supported it on right, is the right of liberty. Now let me read, this is remarkable, let me read you from that decision the radical way that they define liberty. Listen to this. At the heart of liberty, says Kennedy, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. Beliefs about these matters could not de define the attributes of personhood were they formed under compulsion of the state. <laughs> Adam and Eve. What did they desire? To know good and evil. You know what some theologians say that they were wanting by knowing good and evil? That they would be able to determine for themselves what is good and what is evil. What is Justice Kennedy trying to enshrine in all of us? The right to do that. The right to determine our own meaning existence of human life, etc., etc., etc. And you see how that is an attitude of pride. Because guys, you ready? I'm sorry, God alone enjoys the authority to determine right from wrong. Where is the meaning of the universe coming from? It rightly comes from God. So to desire that for yourself is really a desire to put yourself in the very place of God. Okay. It's a remarkable. Yeah, by the way, uh, a, a professor, uh, Russ Hittinger, who got me interested in philosophy, said to me soon after the case, and a couple of my friends said, uh, after the Casey decision, he said, 
the justices don't realize this, but they just undermine the possibility of all civil law. Okay. Because, right, I double dog dare you. When you get pulled over, the next time you're speeding, I want you to say to the police officer that Casey decision gives me the right to define the meaning of the universe, and I define the meaning of the universe as my right to drive 85 in a 25 mile per hour zone. So law actually says you don't have the right to define the meaning of the universe. So whether Kennedy realized or not, he really was destroying the possibility of law. Okay, so guys, I'm gonna say this. It is not easy, it is not easy to convince our day about the wonderfulness of truth, all right? Truth is something to be loved, okay? But how you convince our day of that, I think is really hard. First of all, because of its skepticism, but secondly, because it's a spoiled child, and thirdly, because it's filled with pride, okay? But let me say this, if you were to try to do it, I think there's several ways you can do it, but I'm gonna propose the following. So here it goes, this is, so this in some way to try to answer what you were talking about. So, so what would be the way to try to get our generation to see that you cannot be free independent of truth? Here's the way I think you could do it, possibly. I'm not gonna say you'd be successful. Have you ever convinced anyone? Have you ever converted anyone through argument? I have never. So I'm gonna say more than likely you won't win the argument, but I'm gonna say if you were to present an argument, I think you could do it like this. I think the first thing you would have to do is to try to show that there is a moral law that is universal. And by universal, I mean we're all bound to it. So I would say there's no way that you can justify the claim that truth promotes freedom if you don't think there is a universal moral law. Right? So I think that would have to be the first step. Good luck doing that, but I think that'd have to be Okay, secondly, if you could get someone to say, yep, I recognize that there's a moral law that you and I are subject to, then I think you just simply point out the following. There's three positions you can take with the moral law. There's three things that you can do in your own life in relation to that moral law. Number one, you can have all of your choices agree with it. Okay, so you can try to get all your acts, all your choices, everything you do, to agree with the moral law, okay? That's one option. Okay, a section, second option is to literally have your choices oppose the moral law. So whatever the moral law tells you, do the opposite, okay? So that'd be a second possibility. Anybody know what the third possibility is? You could say this, okay, all right, I'll go ahead and do the law, I will fulfill it, but I do it reluctantly. I just do it because I feel forced so I'm gonna say that thing, in my mind, that would be the second thing to do. So those are your three possible options. Comply with the law, all right? Don't do what the law tells you to do, or do it, but do it reluctantly. Okay, now, the third step, which I think would be the final step, would be to say, you're free if you do the first, and you're a slave if you do one of the last two. Okay, when would you be free? if your acts agree with the law. When are you a slave? If your acts don't agree with the law, or what? You do the law, but reluctantly. Okay. Now, of course, I just asserted that. I didn't show that. 
Now, here's what I'm going to say to you. That is almost, the, that's the impossible thing in my mind. That's the thing that would be really, really hard to pull off, is to convince someone that if they have their acts agree with the moral law, then they're free. Okay? And if their acts don't agree with the law, then they're a slave. Okay, and I'll tell you why. The reason is, is that I think it depends on an understanding of human nature. If you're going to try to convince someone that living out the truth will make you free, it depends on the correct understanding of human nature. Now, in my mind, you would have to get the world to see three things about human nature. Right? Ready? Number one, that you actually do have a nature. Okay. That God bless you, that is not given by most people. Most people do not think there is such a thing as a nature. One of my favorite philosophers is Jean-Paul Sartre. He was an atheist. So you might think, oh, what are you doing teaching your Catholic God? It's not because he was an atheist, but he was a very honest atheist. You know what he said? If there is no God, which he said there was not, guess what is the very first thing you get to get rid of? There's no God. You get rid of God, you get to get rid of nature. So guess what Sartre said? You don't have a nature. You don't have a nature. But I'm saying, if you're going to make sense of freedom and truth, you're going to have to say there is a nature to the human person. Okay, secondly, it's good to follow that nature. You have to show that it's good to follow your nature. Again, that would be a hard sell. It's good to follow it. Okay, you ready for the third? If you do, you will be free. Okay, so you have a nature. It's good to follow that nature. Let it take you where it's trying to take you. And then if you let it take you where it's going to take you, you will be free. All right? Okay, now, my, so let's see here. So, uh, by the way, as a side note, I do think the struggle of modernity, the sort of the, uh, the fight, is less about theism versus atheism as much as I think it's about nature versus will. Because guys, if there's no nature, then what is everything determined by? Will. If there is nature, then guess what? Everything is not determined by your will. If you're thinking same-sex marriage, gender stuff, the transgender movement, homosexuality, all of the current rights are all based on, guess what? There ain't no nature. There ain't no nature. Yep. Nature? God bless you. Okay. Now I'm going to tell you that. Okay. All right. Okay. I, you know what? There's uh, actually, what about fighting to nature? So I'm... <laughs> what, I, what I'm going to do is say something that's true about nature. Because what I say that's true about nature is necessary for my point. Uh, I would be happy in the question and answer period to tell you, I couldn't grab off all five means, I could give you like three or four of them. be happy to do that. I can tell you what Aristotle mainly means by nature, which St. Thomas adopts. But, but let me at least tell you the thing that's true. All right, so here it goes. Why is it necessary to turn to human nature? Okay, number one, it's because it is through our nature that we are ordered to an end. Right. Does God order you to an end? Yes, he does. But guess how he first does it? Through giving you a nature. Okay, guys, watch this. If you don't have a nature, come on. If you don't have a nature, guess what Sartre said? You don't have an end. 
So guess who guess who gets to determine your own end? You do. Okay? So let me say this. It's through your nature you're ordered to an end. So there's the thing I want to assert. If you have a nature, you are ordered to an end. Okay, secondly, what is the end that your nature orders you to? Okay, we'll throw out a word. Good. So are you ordered to the good? The claim is yes. And what orders you to the good? First and foremost, your nature does. Okay, now here's the important thing. Listen to this. What good are you ordered to? All right, St. Thomas says you are ordered to what is truly good. All right, listen, your nature just is in order to good. Guess what it's ordered to? Well, yeah, and you're the, yes. Okay, you're right. You are ordered to what is truly good. In fact, St. Thomas claims that if you say your nature is not ordered to what is truly good, you're actually blaspheming God. Because guess where you got your natural order from? God. And if you said that God did not order you to what is truly good, guess what you're actually asserting? God is ordering you to sin. God is ordering you to what is not something authentically good. And of course, God can only do that. Because guess what God orders all things to? To himself. And guess what he is? Something truly good. Okay, so now, so here it goes. You say big wolves. Anybody want to say big wolves? You will say that one, won't you? Say big wolves. Thank you. All right. Okay, now, here it goes. So what in the world does that show us to say that nature orders us to an end, that nature orders us to what is truly good? If you want some true goods, God would be an example. All right, another example would be having children. Another example would be raising your children. Another example would be truth. Another example would be living in society. All those things are truly good. And guess how you're ordered to all those things? Through your nature. Okay. All right, now, here it goes. I think if you can get someone to acknowledge that you have a nature and that your nature is ordered to what is truly good, then you can prove the following three things. Okay, here it goes. If you follow the moral law, then you will be free. Because here it goes. Your moral, the moral law orders you to what your nature orders you to. Okay, what does your nature order you to? What is truly good? Okay, what does the law order you to? What is truly good? So you ready? There's no conflict between law and nature. Okay, now, what does it mean to be free? When I move myself, come on, to what I want. Okay, now, if I'm right about nature, what do we all fundamentally want? What is truly good? Okay, now, let's finish it. Follow law, which is the same thing as following truth. What will I do? I will will what I really want. You see that? I will will what I really want. Because what do I really want? What's truly good. So you guys, you see that? So here it goes. That might be as simplistic, but I think there's some real insight. What does that mean then? Following the law will make you free. Because it will direct you to what you really want. 
And when are you free? When you will what you really want. So guys, you ready? Have I vindicated Jesus at least to some extent? Maybe. I think I have. So Jesus is right to connect freedom to truth. Because what's he saying to you? The truth will make you free. Because what am I building in? Because Jesus is trying to say, follow the truth. It will take you where you want to be. All right? Okay, what's the second thing? Sin is to do what? To go the opposite direction. It's to be the person who does what? Does not follow the law. Now, where will sin take you? you? Why will it take you to slavery? It will enslave you. Because where does sin take you? To what is only apparently good. Guys, what's an apparent good? One that looks like a good, smells like a good, sounds like a good, but it's not. Self-satisfaction. Often self-satisfaction is an example of apparent good. That's correct. Okay, but here it goes. What do you actually want? What do you want? You want what's truly good. But what is sin fixing you on? What is only apparent good. So you ready? When you sin, guess what you're actually doing? Willing what you don't want. Guys, I love the following analogy. My kids think it's lousy, but I think it works. You ready? Sin is like eating McDonald's french fries. <laughs> I am 100% confident of this analogy. You ready? You have had this experience. I get my bag of fries. I'm munching, and I'm going, yum, 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 yum. And there's one fry that's outside the bag. And I go, I must have this. And I go, yum. 20 minutes later, while I'm driving home, I go, yuck, yuck, <laughs> yuck. I just deceive myself. Okay. What happens when you hit McDonald's fries? You say what? I'm getting the good. But what do you realize after you get this good? That was only apparently good. Okay? It's actually something non-good. Very little goodness in McDonald's fries. Sorry. Okay. Okay, sin is like that because what are you doing when you sin? You're going, yum, yum, yum. Well, when the sin is over, come on, yuck, yuck, yuck. What in the heck did I just do? Okay. Okay, why do you say yuck, yuck, yuck? You guys, if you didn't have a nature, come on, you wouldn't say yuck, yuck, yuck. You wouldn't. If it was just simply your will, you would. But if you have a nature, do you see why you say yuck, yuck, yuck? Because what are you now doing? You're opposing what you naturally want. Do you see how that's a slavery? Because what's a slave? Someone who does what they don't want to do. And what are you doing when you sin? You're doing what you don't want to do. Alright? In fact, sin is pretty lousy. Alright? Uh, can, I, can I give you, like, there's 19 reasons it's lousy? <laughs> okay. But one of them, it gives you no peace. It gives you no peace. Alright? Augustine also says, it causes your life to be divided against itself. If you remember his famous prayer, it's a cute prayer. Oh Lord, make me chase, but not yet. So guess what he had? A divided will. 
What brought that division into his life? His unchastity did. Okay, why was it division? Because there was a war between what? His concrete choices, and come on, his nature. And do you remember the other famous line, Augustine? Oh Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. Hittinger, who I mentioned, said that Augustine says that that restlessness that we have for God is natural and good. But do you see what sin introduces into the human soul? A second restlessness. It causes an agitation. Why? Because why? Because in sin, you at least have the subconscious awareness that you're opting for what? What is contrary to what your nature is directing you to. Okay. Uh, do I have five minutes, Gwen? Bless you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Okay, but here's the third thing. Uh, well, so I, I said 19 things about sin. Also, I don't know if you know this, but sin actually is the way that you introduce nothingness into your life. Uh, can I give you, this is a side. So I told Dr. Don, I'm always impressed with the quotes he pulls out for his lectures. But if you don't mind, I'm going to steal one from Jacques Maritain. He, he, I've never taken this on the spot, so I hope I don't blow this. But Jacques Maritain says the way to read in the farewell address of uh, at the Last Supper of our Lord in St. John's Gospel, where our Lord says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You know that? So what Maritain says is you can read that in two ways. You can read it this. I can't even do this on my own. So I can't even wag my finger apart from God. But you see the other way to read it? There is one thing that I can do without God. Give it to me. Nothing. Okay, but what's the nothing that we can all do independent of God? That's the nothingness of sin. So you actually see what you're fixing yourself on when you sin? Nothingness. So you know what Augustine, Anselm, and all these great saints said about the damn souls? In a way, they don't exist. In a way. Because what have they fixed themselves on? The nothingness of sin. It's like they're permanently attached to a nothingness. Can you imagine how miserable that must be? First of all, if you're stuck with yourself through all eternity, and you fix yourself, guys, I can barely stand myself every day. Do you know what the eternity of hell is? You're stuck with yourself. You're all eternity. Do you realize how nauseating that is? You guys ever seen, you guys watch The Office? My favorite episode is where Michael decided he has to demonstrate the dangers of office work to the guys in the warehouse. So depression, office depression, for Michael is a real thing. So he decides to be up on the roof of the office building, which is like four stories high. And the idea is to bring everyone out, all the guys in the warehouse. And Michael's going to jump off because he's depressed. But he's going to jump on like a, a trampoline, jump up, and then walk around. And everyone's like, poor Michael. And then he becomes a hero and all this kind of stuff. Well, they eventually find out Michael's actually going to do this. He's going to jump. Now, I don't know if you know Daryl. Daryl's the guy who's really jealous of me. He's the cool guy down in the warehouse. So Daryl comes out. And Daryl's on crutches because Michael got down to the warehouse and knocked out the ladder that uh, Daryl's standing on, caused him to bust his leg. So he comes out on his crutches. And he gets on the megaphone and goes, Michael, don't, don't do it, man. Don't do it. 
And Michael says, why not? He said, Michael, you've had things to live for. Michael says, no, I don't. And Daryl says, oh, come on, Michael. You're braver than I am. Right here comes Wyatt. That's really great. And Michael says, you really mean that, Daryl? Daryl goes, yes, Michael, because if I had to wake up every day knowing that I had to be you, I couldn't do it. <laughs> which is what hell this. Hell is waking up every day knowing you have to be yourself again. But anyway, so, so guys, so here it goes. So the third option, you remember the third option? I do the moral law, but I do it reluctantly. Okay, watch this. Why do some people fulfill the moral law? Because they fear hell. Is that a bad motive? No. But you ready? It's an inferior motive. And watch this. It's a slavish motive. If you fulfill the moral law, but reluctantly, and the reluctance is due to your fear of hell, I say to you, and I say this to my students sometimes, I want you to take the fear of hell out of the picture. I say to you, no hell. What would you what would you want if there were no possibility of hell? If you say, I would want what the law actually forbids, okay, that's actually the person who fulfills the law from reluctance. Guess what that person actually wants? What the sinner wants. But why doesn't he do what the sinner does? Because he feels the threat of hell. So how's he acting? by compulsion. Come on, who's not free? The person who is compelled to act. Do you remember that arrow? The arrow is compelled to go the direction I'm sending it. The person who fulfills the law reluctantly does what? Does it, but come on. Is almost forced by his fear to do it. So that person is still slave. All right, we got two minutes, right, Gwen? Maybe we can just skip ask. We'll just skip ask. Oh. <laughs> All right, uh, so guys, let me just say, let me, I'm going to bring this to a conclusion. So here it goes. So how does the law move the human person? I want to say, in, a, in the case of the person who agrees with the law, the law is said to move that person sweetly. Because there's no what? Conflict. That person actually wants what? To do what the law says needs to be done. There's no disagreement. Okay, what about the person who sins? Who say the law is frustrated? It doesn't effectively move that person. Because where is the law trying to direct that person? To what is truly good. But where is that person going? To what is apparently good, not true. Okay, and then how does the law move the person who does it reluctantly? I think the word is forcibly. The law has to move that person forcibly. This is why crime in California is shooting us through. Because in the reforms, what have they taken away? Some people can only do what the law requires under threat. But I'm just saying, in some cases, the law moves the person by compulsion. All right. I actually have one more argument, but there's absolutely no time for it, so I'm just going to skip it. All right. 
Should I give you a couple recommendations or should we just stop there and devote ourselves the last 15 minutes to questions? Which one do you want to do? I'm perfectly fine with, so let me just say this. What do you think? Is that, is, it, you, don't have to, you don't have to nod your head up and down and say, yeah, that's the best argument I've ever heard. But fundamentally, you see sort of what my point was? The, the point was what? Look, you want to be free, follow the law. Why? Because the law will take you exactly where you actually want to go. And that is, you realize when you sin, you're actually worse off than a slave. Do you know why you're worse off? Is because many slaves don't hate themselves. But guess what every sinner does? Hates himself. You may not know that, but do you realize what hate is? Hate is when you wish harm to someone. I hate you, Colonel. I'm going to wish harm to you. When I sin, guess what I'm actually doing? Whether I know it or not, I'm wishing harm to myself. So to that extent, I actually hate myself. This is why the self-hatred of the damn is so intense. They actually hate themselves. Father Basama used to say in one of his homilies, those who fornicate, they often try to justify it because if you love me, to wake up, you actually hate what are you doing? In that moment, you're actually willing and able to the other person. All right, so I, I tell you, I'll skip my my recommendations were go to Jesus because of what one of you guys said. Because what does Jesus identify himself as? Truth. So when he says the truth will set you free, and then he mentions the word son, guess who he's talking about? Himself. Okay? And so if you want to be free, devote your life completely to Jesus. He's the one who can free you. Can you see why? I think it's really cool. First of all, he's removed the penalty of sin. So that threat of hell, Jesus has liberated us from that. Right? Because we don't have to end up in hell. Secondly, guess what else is possible for Jesus? That in this life, you can get close to avoiding sin. So he can free you from sin, even in this life. And then thirdly, guess where he takes you to? He takes you to a place where you will be permanently free. And that's heaven. I don't know if you know this, you're going to be more free in heaven than you will be here. Do you know why you'll be more free? Because guess what? You absolutely will be free of in heaven. The possibility of sin. And then, right this, what are you fixed on in heaven? On the thing you really want. Maureen, did you have a hand up? Uh, my question was, God bless you. God bless you, Maureen. In fact, I will tell you, when I was going through rehearsing my notes, I said I'm a little worried about that. I can't believe how sharp you are to note the random insertion. So God bless you. So here's what I want to say. I could justify that the following way. When I say law there, I didn't mean natural law. And natural law is a law that is based on nature, on human nature. So I could do that. But the point that I wanted to make was, this is that nature takes us to what's truly good and law does the same thing. So that was my justification to sneak law back in. Okay, but even this, even the divine cause of law, the law that Jesus manifested to us, that also does not contradict what's there by nature. This is one of the beautiful Dr. Bell's about faith and reason. That's one of the beautiful teachings about Catholicism. I walked into our chapel this morning, I said, I love being in this chapel. It is a wonderful, it is absolutely beautiful. 
And then I realized it was great to be a Catholic. All right, how many churches out there have the beauty that we have in our churches? Okay, but then another reason is this idea that that theology, grace, the supernatural life does not negate nature. It builds on it, elevates it, and perfects it. So I want to say even the divine positive law corresponds to that natural order to what's true. That was a wonderful question. Yes, Captain. Um, so you put in the word delivered a couple of times. Yes. Yeah, God bless you. Liberty is typically meant, so this goes back to my homework, which I did not give you capital about, but uh, here's the thing. The first meaning of freedom is not to be hindered. So when William Wallace was getting his intro taken out and he screamed freedom, he wasn't screaming for free choice. He wasn't going, oh, I want to be free. My ability to choose, excuse me. He was talking about, I don't want to be put in jail. I don't want to be hindered. So if I'm in jail, I don't enjoy Freedom, but I would say this: when people talk about that, the word liberty is often used. So liberty often refers to not being stopped or hindered or blocked from doing what I want to do. So you're right, Chris. A bird that's not in the cage has that kind of liberty because it's not being hindered from flying. I put it in the darn uh, cage, then I hinder it from doing what it wants to do. So I would limit the liberty that could be there in a bird. But a bird doesn't have free choice. So you see a second meaning of freedom, which is what's called free choice, is not only am I not hindered, but when I choose, I can really do the opposite of what I'm doing right now. So let me say all those arguments of, if you go on YouTube, all those people that argue against free will, that's the, that's the free will they're talking about. They're talking about that you actually don't have the ability to choose differently than the way you choose. So the example I'll often give is, I got Cheerios and I got cornflakes. I wake up in the morning, I go down to my kitchen, I pull out both boxes of cereal and I say, I'm free. They're gonna say, no, I'm gonna convince you you're not. You think you're free at those moments, you think you're making a choice, but the claim of many determinists is that you're not. So I always say to this, I actually have a relative of mine who's an utter determinist and I actually met in a casino of a question. And he and I got into this conversation about freedom and he was an utter determinist. And I'm convinced of this. If you are a determinist, if any of you eventually get married, all of you guys are probably married or whatever, but if any young person here decides to get married, when you go to the altar, I want you to have the courage, if you're a determinist, to turn to her and say, honey, I'm not going to thank you because you had no choice in the matter. <laughs> I might thank the universe because the universe has set it up that you would be determined <laughs> Not to choose, but you'd be determined for me to be in your life. But it's the universe that was doing that. So, do you like this tie shirt combination? Just say you do. No, you should not say that. You should just say, universe, well done. All right, you have put this tie on this man this morning. All right, so you might think you're, so that's the kind of, so those, the 19th century debates between free will and determinism was really a question of that. It was a question of choice. Mr. Dick. Well, I understand. Right over to that, right back here. It seems in your talk that it seems that real malice isn't actually possible. Like you can't will people knowing it's holy evil. Uh, God bless. Wow, Jake. Good, very good question, Jake. Very good question. Jake Ward wrote a senior thesis under me and did a very nice job. Even though we disagreed on one of the fundamental understandings of one of his notions, 
but he justified it well enough that I had to give him a You got an A on it, so he did nice stuff. Jake's, Jake was one of those great students to have in class. I won't mention Glenn. Glenn is awesome. <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, yeah, in fact, are you ready for this, Jake? Uh, if you mean by malice, the possibility of willing evil directly, then you cannot do that. Okay, what you can do, okay, is still commit the sin of malice, okay, meaning the following. While you're deciding what to do, you are fully aware that this act is contrary to God's law. And you still decide to do it. Okay, at the moment you decide to do it, Guess why you do it? Because you take it as something good. Okay, but guess what you're taking? Something that's only apparently good. But you know, here, here's my point. You are treating this thing as if it is good. But it ain't. And this is why you experience guilt later. Because you realize it. So you see how you went to sin malice? I can, in full knowledge, you know that this is contrary to the law of God. Okay, I could will to do it even though I'm not motivated by passions, but I just decide to do it. But at the moment I do it, I have to regard this thing as if it is a good. In fact, I've convinced mortal sin, that's exactly what you're doing. You see what you're doing in mortal sin? You're actually saying, I am fixing my will on this thing as if it is my final end, and I know it's not, but I'm gonna treat it as if it's my final good. That's what mortal sin is. Tell me about Question, relating to that. We understand nature is good, it's God-given. What, what is the best way to respond to someone, you think, who says, nature is fallen, where we don't, nature yes. is fallen and wounded. Yes. I am following my God-given natural bent. Yes, God bless you, but uh, yes, what you. Would be, what would be the most effective, well, what would you say uh, to someone, and you're where I'm going with that. I, I hear, yeah, here's what I would say, Tim, I, I, really, I really do mean this. If you want the best example of someone who mistakes Following nature as nature is Thomas Hobbes. Thomas Hobbes looks at the world, says that is crappy. But what he's looking at is fallen nature, but he treats it as if it is nature. So here's what he ends up saying: We're all bent on the destruction of others by nature. Okay. Okay. Here's the problem: He was not a Catholic. He did not know of original sin. If he had understood original sin, then he would understand that our nature is not in its original state. It's a fallen nature. So there's a kind of disorder that has been introduced to our nature. So those who say, I'm going to follow my nature, right, in the sense of what we would describe as fallen nature, like I'm going to get into my appetites for pleasure, they're actually not following nature. They're following the fallenness of that nature, the following that disorder. So I'm going to actually say, I honestly think the only way to do it is actually through an appeal of Christian faith, because we cannot philosophically understand and know about original sin. And so without understanding that original uh, choice and what it did to all of reality, you're not going to be able to understand the human condition. And that's why it's difficult that if someone says, I am ordered by nature towards same-sex attraction. That's right. God bless you. God bless you. They, that is, here's the thing. That right there, see, that's the beauty of it. Uh, that right there is mistaking fallen nature for nature. Your nature is not ordered to same-sex 
It is not. If you look at the natural order of the sexual reproductive organs, it is ordered to heterosexual sex. That's the natural order. So anyone who justifies that, but that's all. But you see what's actually cool about that when they do that? They actually see that nature has a kind of weight to it. So they say, I'm following my nature. Come on. What's wrong with the same sex attraction if I'm just following my nature? You see, they're implicitly agreeing with our view that nature is something, uh, uh, that something is a standard. It's a standard. Just like in wokeism, there's a certain absolutism. Yes, truth. yes, 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 yes. This is the yes. truth, and yes. you can't even mention that, anything. That's, oh, yes, yes, yes. And the reason why you can't mention anything is because their position has no rationality to it, so it becomes merely assertion of will. It's a power. That's why it all becomes a power struggle. Because, listen, you cannot. So when you ask a simple question, what you asked, mentioned last night, when uh, uh, Walsh, what's his name, Walsh? Yeah, not Kevin Walsh, Walsh. The guy that's famous, Matt Walsh. When he goes around and asks people, what is a woman? No one in the woke world can answer. They cannot answer the question. So they literally have to resort to what they can resort to, which is assertion of will and power. You're a homophobe. Shut up, you're blah, 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 blah. They have to go to name calling. All right, what else? I saw another hand over here. Oh, no, it's, uh, is it time to take one more? Uh, yes, one more. more. Yes, okay. one more. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Anything else? Yeah. Yeah. All right, yeah, that's <laughs> he was off. Yeah, he's also a good student, too. Uh, <laughs> right, anything else? For lunch, yes. Well, let me ask the flip side of this question. I mean, we're ordered, you know, our nature orders us to the good, but there's very praiseworthy things that from time are far contrary to nature. So, like, for example, we're ordered to resist death, but Maximilian Kobe substitutes himself in line. Nope, that, guess what? Nope, guess what? Because, yeah, I'll tell you why. That's still according to nature. Here it goes. Because your nature is actually three. And what I mean is this, there's a nature that you share in common with all things, and that nature orders you to self-preservation. Okay. But then guess what, you have an animal nature. That nature orders you to begetting offspring and to educating your offspring. But you're ready for the third one? You have an intellectual nature. And guess what your intellectual nature is ordered to? To a common good. Mm -hmm. Now I didn't mean, so I, I said that sort of in a sarcastic way. But it, it orders you to a common good, guess what that means? It means in your intellectual, rational nature, you can actually place the good of someone else above your own self-preservation. That's according to nature. Which is why I'm more than appropriate when I become a priest. I'm more than appropriate when I become a religious You got it. You said that very nicely. And this is often where people shake their head. That's the worst decision. I almost feel sorry for someone who goes in the monastery because it looks like they're acting against the natural order, which is to have a family. But then if you look at it from the other perspective, no, in fact, your primary nature is to order yourself to God. And that should be put before all else. So someone who opts to put God as the primary target of their life, even here, is actually acting according with their nature. Guys, God bless you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.